0: And welcome to The Transfer Window, the podcast that takes you inside the biggest deals at the biggest clubs in world football. I'm Johnny McFarlane and joining me are our transfer market insiders and pundits extraordinaire, Duncan Castles and Ian McGarry. This week, Eden Hazard is setting the Premier League alight after a summer of discontent when he looked certain to leave London. Will the Belgium star stay at Stamford Bridge, now his new boss, Mikel Sari, has made him the creative hub of a dynamic new Chelsea side? We look at the controversy surrounding Marcus Rashford and whether the boy with the Roy of the Rover spirit is ready to lead the line for one of the world's biggest clubs. And even Gazitas has been given carte blanche to reconstruct Arsenal. But now he's off to Milan, how will the North London club cope with even more flux at the top As Unai Emery tries to rebuild. Okay, before we start, gentlemen, welcome back, Duncan, from your butterfly uh, excursions. No no butterflies
1: involved. It's only Henry McRae can afford to spend his time chasing exotic butterflies in the, in the regions of the <laughs> world. I was, actually, I was actually arranging a monument to uh, the maestro of uh, Aberdeen football, um, Willie Miller at Malaga, um, but I'm struggling to get the money together for that statue of uh, Willie running into Alan Hansen at the moment. <laughs> so if any of our listeners can help, I, th- I think it would look wonderful.
0: <laughs> well... Away from Scottish football, because I'm sure that would bore everyone to tears if we talked about that too long. Um, we are going to start with Eden Hazard. He has started the season on fire. Five games, five goals, two assets, and a guy who looked pretty unhappy at times last season under the structures of Antonio Conte looks completely freed up under his new boss, Maurizio Sarri. Ian, there was a lot of chat that perhaps Hazard's time had come and gone at Chelsea and he'd be on his way in the summer. It hasn't happened and now he looks like a changed man. Do you think this means that Hazard's going to end up staying at Stamford Bridge? I doubt that very much, Johnny. Um,
2: Unlike his uh, Belgian teammate uh, Thibaut Courtois, who, uh, let's not say he agitated for his move to Real Madrid, but he certainly made his mind up quite early on and and in fact only recently admitted that um, he informed Chelsea in March of his decision that he wanted to leave and allowed them to sort out the details of that, etc, etc. Now, interestingly, Azard this time next year, or sorry, I should say in June next year, will be in the same contract situation as Courtois, i.e. one year out of contract at Chelsea. He looks to me like a man very calm, very happy with his, um, his, his way of life right now. Sari certainly has given him, uh, you said, freed up. He's definitely given him freedom to play in a way that um, he prefers to play, I right across the uh, attacking midfield three, um, playing much more further forward and, and not restricted to starting on the wings, etc. The hat-trick last weekend was impressive, uh, but no more than we come to expect of Hazard. My information is that um, one of the reasons he's so calm about his future is that he has concrete interest if not offers from three of Europe's biggest clubs Real Madrid Barcelona and Bayern Munich for the season after this and he may well choose uh, one of those elite clubs to to, to transfer to and his contract situation being what it is Chelsea would be forced into the situation which they were with Courtois whereby um, either we allow him to go and and get a decent fee for him or will him to run his contract down and get nothing whatsoever now um if azar decides to leave and and I think he does believe and I think those around him certainly believe it's time for something new for him to try um mm-hmm. his his um further his career elsewhere, then at least chelsea have in this case. Uh, a good seven months' notice, um, in time to prepare to replace him. Um, albeit, you know, players at his level are difficult to come by. So um, I think with Hazard, that that's, uh, that sense of tranquility that uh, we are seeing with regards to his situation right now is partly down to the fact that I think he knows his future is within his own hands; that he can choose. Amongst you know, three of the biggest clubs in the world, his um, ambition to win Champions League and and other titles as well would certainly be um, heightened, if not certainly fulfilled, uh, at either of those uh, any of those three clubs, and therefore he's in a situation now where he can basically train, play, see what happens with Chelsea this season, all in the knowledge that uh, come uh, May or even earlier he will be able to make a decision about his future next season um and so for a football player you can uh, that's the kind of dream scenario you've made a decision to stay you've got offers on the table to to go to where you want to be um and therefore you can just let things roll and see what happens for you in the season as as i said in the knowledge that uh, the move is there for you if you want it when you want it
1: yeah look i think i think chelsea need to um, assess this situation uh, very carefully they've offered Eden Hazard an improved contract last season which would have made him the best paid player in the history of the club Um, substantial rise in what he has now and he didn't take it Um, he decided to try and get his move to Madrid in the summer Um, we we saw him verbally push for that on a number of occasions but um, they managed to retain him because uh, he, he wasn't prepared to go all out to force the move. Then I think Ian's analysis is a very good one. He's um, he's in a comfortable position. He's now the the central attacking force in a team that's been reshaped around him. Um, I know from people who um, know Hazard well, he's he's not um, the most aggressive of individuals. He's a, a guy who um, enjoys his family life, enjoys his downtime, um, enjoys his time in the pitch, but. <laughs> there's always been a question mark about whether he has the drive to turn himself into an absolute top level player. So to go from the tier he's on on onto the, to the tier where Cristiano Ronaldo and Lionel Messi have been. Um, And that could be to Chelsea's advantage. If they can catch him during this season, a period where he is enjoying life, enjoying football, um, scoring goals, being lauded for his play, uh, offer him that contract again or uh, or an increase on it uh, on the terms that they offered him last season and, and catch him at a point where he, he signs they could get him for essentially for the rest of his career because he's 27 now will be 28 in January um, that contract expires at a time where if he's going to leave this summer or leave uh, at, by running it down to the end that will be the last opportunity, a big contract for him, realistically. Um, so, if they can can tie him down this season by playing their cards right, um, catching him in the right mood, then they should have him for good. Um, so, if you know, if I was Marina Granovskaya, um, if I was Ro- Roman Abramovich, looking at this situation, that's that's how I would be playing it strategically. Present, if if they still think that Eden Hazard is the player to, um, to build the club around. And I think there's a, there's a question mark there because I know last season uh, they were aware of the possibility of Hazard pushing for a move in the summer and they'd started to do the preparations um, for replacements in his position. So um, I do not rule out the possibility that where one of those clubs Ian mentioned to come up with a, um, a, a, a huge, significant offer uh, that Chelsea felt was in their economic advantage um, relative to giving Hazard that record contract, that they would take it. But if they still think he's the man and they want to keep him into his 30s and pay him in those terms, then I think there is a window of, of opportunity for them to retain the player this season.
0: He's quite a, an interesting player in that he's not always had representation throughout his career. He went into his last deal with Chelsea without an agent. Uh, he just went in with a lawyer, I believe, What's his current status in terms of his representation, and how unusual is that in the modern game? It's not as unusual as you might think, Johnny. Um, a lot of players are represented by a
2: family member, and most, you know, significantly and famously, Neymar um, represented by his dad. But what you have, obviously, is a coterie of advisors, mainly lawyers, accountants, etc., who will actually do the negotiations and who will. Um, survey and uh, approve any contract offers etc etc and hazard is is not different in that sense his dad has a very big influence in his career uh he has um two lawyers who I understand are very trusted by the family and who have negotiated deals in the past one of the things i'd say about um hazard's future is uh it's we should not underestimate the um, power of chat between teammates. Now, by that I mean Kevin De Bruyne has just signed a new deal with Manchester City worth in excess of £300,000 per week. Courtois has done likewise at Real Madrid. Hazard currently earns around £210,000 a week in his uh, contract at Chelsea. Clearly, to keep him, um, Hazard would value himself... Both uh, at the same level as his, his international teammates, De Bruyne and Courtois. So, I, I would say if Chelsea's uh, sort of my director uh, Marina Gravskaya, uh, etc., and other directors are going to put together a deal which will tempt Hazard to effectively, as Duncan said, see out his career uh, at Stamford Bridge, then they will have to come up with figures close, if not in excess of those which his current international teammates have signed at their respective clubs, Manchester City and Real Madrid. So why not Chelsea are prepared to commit to that? I'm not sure. Um, Currently their wage bill is not the the, the highest in the Premier League. It used to be, it was for some years, but they've managed to sort of chip away and cut that back a little bit in the last three to five years. Um, We know that the investment at Chelsea has decreased uh, year by year and is in danger of decreasing again because of the rather fluid status of Roman Branovic's commitment to the club. Remember, the stadium rebuild has been put on hold. Um, he himself, as we all know, um, has had his uh, visa rejected in this country and has taken up Israeli citizenship instead. So I think Hazard's future has many, many um, facets which will influence uh, what he does. Um, but I suspect with him... Um, that it will be the ambition to fulfil his uh, desire to win the Champions League more than one time, to uh, realise his potential at, as Duncan rightly says, the peak of his career, um, and sign that one sort of mega contract, if you like, which will see him through the next four or five years. Uh, Well, that's at Chelsea, I'm not convinced. I think that Hazard has kind of coveted either the white shirt of Real Madrid or the... uh, Blaugrana of of Barcelona for some time, and I think that the most likely outcome of this will be that he will move at the end of next this season.
0: Obviously, Duncan Eden Hazard, as I've said, has had an incredible start to the season. Is there anyone else that's uh, making you stand up and take notice? Obviously, Liverpool have have had a terrific start, and as well as Chelsea.
1: Look, I think you you can't argue with. Um, With five wins out of five in terms of points on the board, um, I still think uh, the most impressive team at present in the Premier League is Manchester City. Um, You look at the you look at the individual games that Chelsea and Liverpool have played. Chelsea were very fortunate to to beat Arsenal, and um, I've had uh, close things in some of their other matches. I'm not convinced about the the, the structure of the team um, with Jorginho as a holding midfielder uh, in front of a, a fairly suspect defence. So um, I don't, I really don't see that uh, run continuing once they they play more of the. Uh, the, the Premier League stronger teams uh, in a better shape. I think they were lucky to get Arsenal so early in the season with Unai Emory trying to uh, implement a lot of changes uh, to his his squad uh, very rapidly. And Liverpool, <laughs> it's interesting. I was talking to someone involved in recruitment um, the other day, and he said that it, that's the the least impressive um, five uh, five game winning streak to the start of a Premier League season I've ever ever seen. And I, I have a bit of sympathy with that, um, with that perspective because I think in all of all of the games they've played, or almost all the games they've played, you've seen weaknesses and you've you've seen the possibility for them to drop points. I think um, they did absolutely what they needed to do against Tottenham. Um, I was shocked that Pochettino set his team up that way, um, playing with a high defensive line against um, a Liverpool team that we all know loves to play. Uh, teams that come on to them and give them space to play
0: into. Um, Why do the... top coaches continue to do that, Duncan? Because it's not—he's not the only one. Roma did it as well against Liverpool. You'd think people would have cottoned onto this by now. Roma
1: did it. Manchester City did it. I genuinely—I I don't know the answer to that question. I don't see. I, I don't understand how someone like Pochettino, who we frequently laud for his coaching abilities, goes into a match like that thinking it's a good idea to push your defensive lineup, and on top of that play have both full-backs, as soon as you get the ball uh, running beyond your midfielders. It's you know, it's not complicated to know that Liverpool are just going to sit there and say, right, we'll grab possession. Of you and play play you into the channels behind the centre backs and behind those full backs that pushed up and and get our goals from there. You know it's um, it's very basic stuff. What is interesting about Liverpool um, is that they they don't seem to be pressing quite as high up the pitch as they did previously. There seems to be a bit of a tactical change this season in that um, they tended to try and win the ball immediately after the opposition got hold of it and and to try and do it as close to the opposition goal as possible. And the Tottenham game was quite a good example in that they were actually allowing Tottenham to come at them um, and and then they'd they'd apply their press uh, just inside their own half or in the middle of the field. So they'd they'd allow Tottenham to pass the ball at the back to push those full backs up and then catch them. Um, in the middle, and yeah, perhaps it's because because Tottenham were playing Eric Dyer in midfield, and they knew that Dyer, um, the strength of his game is not his passing. Um, so uh, you know, it's a, ironically, it's a kind of Mourinho-like tactic to allow your opponents um, to give the ball to their weaker players and let them have the space to pass and then and, and pick off those miss-hit passes um, to to launch your attacks. So there has been a change in Liverpool; it's still the same fundamental counter press and counter attract strategy um, get get as quickly into your opponents as possible once you have the ball but they're not doing it quite as high up the field in all the games so that that's interesting um, to to see how that develops with them um, but yeah look this this week's um, Champions League game is, is also a fascinating uh, match to observe um, and see how this Liverpool copes with playing um, a team full of, of serious talent um, with a different manager in charge. Um, I think the, the, the real tests are still there and then then we can make a decision about um, whether Liverpool are genuine contenders for the Premier League or not.
0: Ian, what do you make of the start to the season and who do you think um, is going to give Manchester City the biggest challenge? I'd say that um, Manchester
2: City's dilemma, Pep Guardiola's um, challenge this season is uh, to... Compete to a level which is acceptable to the club's owners in the Champions League. Um, and therefore, having to split, if you like, that ambition between maintaining Premier League um, a challenge there, which would see them obviously uh, attempt to defend the title um, for the first time since Manchester United won back to back titles, uh, would be um, very, very uh, difficult whilst trying to win the Champions League as well. Um, you just have to look at the last 10, 15 years of Champions League winners to see how many clubs won the domestic title and won the Champions League to see how difficult that is, Johnny. So I reckon that's going to be um, Guardiola and City's biggest challenge this season because last year they were at the final stage, at which point they already had a very healthy in the, in the Premier League and they just basically sought out. They, they were like, you know, the sort of... Um, the batting order down the line in cricket, who, you know, the, the, the night watchman who just basically sees, sees it out and makes sure the game is won in the Premier League this year, I think, to compete in, in both levels will be uh, a massive uh, and very different kind of scenario for them. And it's going to be interesting to see how uh, the next few weeks pan out in terms of the group stages. Uh, Chelsea, I think, are not firing on all cylinders uh, yet. Uh, under Sari, I think there's still a lot of work to be done in order for Sari to uh, get his message across, if you like, because it, it's clear that um, they're having some close shaves with regards to results and conceding goals, et etc. et cetera. Liverpool, for me, have probably the most impressive, but I agree with Duncan that they've not had a, exactly a difficult fixture list uh, as yet, um, Tottenham being their, their most difficult opponent so far and a Tottenham team who I think thought set up very badly against him with a diamond in the midfield. It was very narrow when you think about um, you're playing against three of the best forward players in European football, uh, two of which will play on the wing. So again, um, Liverpool's priorities changed very quickly last season. They concentrated in the Champions League when they knew that the Premier League was beyond them. Um, this season, I think people expect, and St. Liverpool fans expect, a, cha- a Premier League challenge from their team. So Klopp like uh, Guardiola will have a choice to make at some point, unless, of course, they get a massive slice of luck or uh, a huge um, wave of motivation and momentum which allows them to play in both competitions, the likes of which we've not seen in this country since 1999 when Manchester United won the treble. So uh, I think at that point, you know, you can see how difficult it is when we have to go back as far as 1999 to see... Uh, and to experience when a team actually managed to do both, i.e. win the Premier League and the Champions League in the same season?
1: I, I think Ian's spot on was um, the the point, the, the difficulty Guardiola has and, and we see it in the way Guardiola's been managing this season is that is that um, can he meet Abu Dhabi's expectation of winning the Champions League while retaining the Premier League? Um, we've seen Guardiola trying to downplay that from the very start Uh, the first interview he gave after winning the Premier League, he was insistent that the the priority was to win the Premier League again, not to win the Champions League, which is very different from um, the noises coming from Abu Dhabi. Um, We've seen him talk about how how he didn't expect to win by such a big margin again saying it was impossible um saying the opponents would be a lot better and saying that the key was for him was to keep the players motivated and um to keep them at the top of their game and you know i think you've just got to look at um how he's dealt with leroy sani um in the first part of the season uh dropping him uh leaving him entirely out of a matchday squad at one point um, as essentially as a punishment for um, not applying himself properly in training, so you, you see Guardiola trying to ensure that key players and Sani was a very important player for him last season um, are at the same level as last as they were last season because he need, he knows he needs them to be there to achieve these goals. I think um, so. There was some other interesting things with Manchester City. They they announced a record revenues. Um, last week they've, they've gone over the £500 million mark for the first time um, albeit with a huge chunk of, of commercial revenue. Their, um, their commercial revenue is, is almost £100 million more than every any other club in the Premier League apart from Manchester United um, which of course you'd expect Manchester United to have such big revenues because they are um, hugely popular throughout the world and have concentrated in that for years. Um, obviously uh, Manchester City, five Five of their their big sponsors are from Abu Dhabi. So their big sponsors are essentially the the people that own them. Um, And there was also um, a letter from Sheikh Mansour, the the titular owner of the club, um, which I found quite amusing as he he talked about how he was proud to be one of the Manchester City fans. Um, So proud to be one of Manchester City's fans that in his 10 years of ownership, he has attended just one match in person. Um, But, you know, PR is PR, isn't it?
0: Well, from one side of Manchester to the other, we haven't talked about Manchester United yet. They obviously had a bit of a sticky start, but two difficult away ties have been put to bed and uh, things seem to be on the up for Jose Mourinho's men. However, there has been a bit of controversy surrounding Marcus Rashford, with Rio Ferdinand the latest to question Jose Mourinho's use of the player. He said that essentially... The Roy of the Rover spirit that Rashford encapsulates has been curtailed under Josie Duncan, what do you make of this?
1: Well, we've discussed Marcus Rashford a number of times in this podcast. Um, The point seems to be that Marcus Rashford is one of England's great talents. Um, Therefore, he should be starting for Manchester United at centre forward. Um, Is he ready to be the starting centre forward for Manchester United? I don't think he is. Um, and more importantly, the coach of the club and his assistant coaches don't think he's ready to be the starting centre forward at Manchester United. Why isn't he ready? As we've discussed several times, he's pretty one-dimensional still in the way he plays. He wants to have space to run into. He wants to have the ball played ahead of him. He wants to be running onto the ball. And when, and, and if you give him it in those circumstances, he is very good. He scores a lot of goals. He He beats defenders for pace. And, and he worries them. But what he isn't uh, doing on a regular basis, I'm not going to say he's incapable of doing it, because you, you think from his, his physique physique he should be able to do it because he's tall and he's muscular. Um, he isn't able at present or doesn't seem to want to take the ball with his back to goal, um, hold it and bring in teammates or take the ball in the air. Um, knock the ball on to other players, knock the ball back to other players or control it in the air and bring it down. And, you know, that's a fundamental quality that a centre-forward in most teams, you can probably get away with not doing it at Manchester City because of the way they play, but in most clubs, you'd expect a centre-forward to be capable of that. So, you know, as Mourinho pointed out in his press conference, he's given uh, Rashford a lot of playing time. He's I think appeared in more um, matches as an outfielder than any other player under him and and the minutes are substantial. Um, I I saw Rio Ferdinand's argument, um, he's saying, comparing Rashford to previous uh, stars that have come through, he says, if you think about the best players that come through, Michael Owen, Fabregas, Lampard, Gerrard, Kylian Mbappe, Rooney, these players played every game straight away. They start every game which breeds confidence. Well, I'm afraid Rio Ferdinand, you know, maybe in his memory, these players started every game as soon as they, um, they got in, became Premier League or top tier players. But the, the, the truth is very different. Um, Frank Lampard, in his first two seasons uh, w- in which he made 10 appearances or more, 30 starts in the Premier League, played 2,862 minutes. Gerard 30, 2,585 minutes. Mbappe, and this is League One, this isn't the Premier League, 19 starts, 1,788 minutes. Rashford's got more than all of those. He's got almost as many as Wayne Rooney had playing for Everton. So, you know, one, it's not the case that these top players immediately come into teams and start every games, And two, is Rashford actually at the same level as these players you know sometimes you get young players who come in um and in their first you know season first two seasons in the premier league they're outstanding and they catch everyone by surprise because they didn't expect them to have that ability straight off the bat and some of these players don't develop or they don't get much better than they are at at that stage I know Mourinho thinks Rashford can turn into a top, top player, mainly, I think, because he likes his, um, his mental attitude um, and he likes his, his willingness to learn on top of the, the, the technical attributes he's got. But Rashford still has to prove um, that he can develop into that level of player. And there's no guarantee, you, you know, he's, he's placing him on, on a par with the best young footballer um, in the world at present, um, a former Ballon d'Or winner, and uh, you know four, five of the of the best Premier League players of the last um, two decades. I'm, I'm not sure Marcus Rashford is going to become one of the best Premier League players of, of the next decade. Um, I think he will be a very good footballer, but that still has to be proven. So that the the level of expectation around the player, I think exceeds what he has delivered on the football field so far?
2: I think it's important to contextualise the Rashford debate and um, without being too cynical um, about uh, how these things come about, when a young English talent scores two goals for England in consecutive games, that goal in each game, etc., then the agenda is more or less set for the coming two or three days and that will be always... Um, his performance stroke appearances for his club, why is it that this young man's not playing more for Manchester United, why is he not scoring more goals why is it, why are his appearances and goals ratio what they are instead of what they might be given his performances for his country um, I've seen it so many times it's quite boring uh, and that's why I said initially I want to avoid being cynical about it, sometimes the agenda is, is effectively written for you as a journalist or as a uh, uh, someone in the media, and um, there's not much to talk about more than Rashford's performances and compare them to his time at Manchester United. And indeed, um, as a subtext to all this, there's also been a debate about Phil Foden at Manchester City and why he doesn't get game time at Manchester City. Time which, in comparison to Rashford's, is, is you know, his minuscule, uh, Foden, albeit he's younger um unless experience, But Rashford's minutes, as Duncan's pointed out, have been significant. Um, so in terms of the bandwagon, the Rashford bandwagon building and, and creating more and more noise, I think it's understandable in the circumstances. But I think what Jose Mourinho has done is contextualised it very, very well. Um, he has brought up a, a series of statistics which point out exactly why or how many games or how many minutes Rashford has played and the fact that, as manager of Manchester United, his job is to win football matches. And if Rashford is not justifying um, game time with goals scored or chances created, then it's his job not to pick him and to pick other players who will do better, which is exactly what he's done. Now, again, there's nothing wrong with that. What's wrong, or what's not, not even what's wrong, but what is happening is that it's being compared to his game time with England and um those two things are incomparable. Uh England play around 10 matches per year, Manchester United play around 55 to 60 depending on how far they go in cup competitions. So you can't actually compare the two uh in terms of their um equality of performance for one single player. It just doesn't work like that. Um I don't think that Rashford at this moment in time looks to me like a, a Wayne Rooney did when he was his age. Um in fact, fencing reminds me of Danny Welbeck, who, and we all know how his career has gone, uh, both at Manchester United and since he moved to Arsenal. Okay, there are excuses there with injuries, etc. Cetera, et cetera, but at the same time, many, many players, especially strikers, have burst onto the scene and looked amazing, but then not really fulfilled potential. Now, it's up to, really up to Rashford if he wants to fulfill his potential. I think it's interesting that um, his mental attitude is admired by Mourinho, but He's got to convert his talent into effectiveness. So he's, so he, he, I think he's looked upon at Manchester United, from what I've heard from coaching staff there, as someone who can waste chances and waste possession. And that uh, habit or, or indeed the desire in him to have the ball at his feet and run from wide areas into central areas and then produce a shot... It means that he puts the ball at risk, he puts possession at risk, which is something Mourinho doesn't like. Now, there's a time and place for all of that, but until he can justify uh, in the way that, let's say, we talked about Aiden Hazard earlier, um, who can dribble and take possession and take control of the ball and then produce either a goal or chance created, then Rashford right now is nowhere near in that league. And so what he needs to do is improve his game in order to justify minutes on the pitch and the trust and loyalty of his coach because it's much easier for Gareth Southgate to be loyal to Marcus Rashford than it is for Jose Mourinho.
1: Look, we can, we can look at it two ways. Um, as far as I understand it, Manchester United aren't a development football club. I mean, I, I hear them talked about it some sometimes in the, this history of, of bringing through players from their academy and I hear fans saying they'd be happy just with a, a team of younger talents coming through. But... Um, I think they're still trying to win the premier league at least their manager is and their players are and they're they're trying to win the champions league so if that's the case from the football club's point of view they have to put the best person um, to play center forward at present in the team Um, and i think the assessment is fair that of their current squad marcus rashford isn't the best person to be at center forward romulo lukaku is the best player they've got for that position You can also look at it from the player's perspective. If Marcus Rashford was the starting centre-back at Manchester United, had been for the last two seasons in this period of expectation that United have to get the title back and have to be competitive in the Champions League, and he failed to deliver, um, which the expectation should be that he will fail to deliver because his game isn't rounded enough for it yet, doesn't have the full attributes to play as a centre forward, then where does that leave Marcus Rashford? Because the same the same media, the same uh, commentary that are happy to say uh, Marcus Rashford is being held back by the way he's being used at Manchester United, would then start talking about, um, well, he's not performing. He's not doing what's required of a, Man- of a Manchester United striker. They need to change. Um, so is that the best for Marcus Rashford, to be overexposed at centre forward for Manchester United or to be used as he's being used which has given a lot of playing time a lot of opportunities um, and the development of his career still at Manchester United but not in that potentially very painful limelight of being the man who's who's expected to provide the majority of goals for a team who's expected to win the Premier League title.
0: Another player that's caused a lot of uh, conversation and controversies, uh, Anthony Martial, and I believe Duncan that you have some uh, some news on his situation.
1: Yeah, there were a few reports last week um, that Manchester United did not sell Martial in the summer window um, because um, AS Monaco, his previous club, held a um, a right within. Uh, their original transfer agreement with Manchester United, that they got 50% of um, either the profit on a transfer or 50% of the transfer fee where they did sell them. Um, I've checked that with uh, people at Monaco and they tell me there's no uh, sell-on clause um, and that Monaco have no entitlement to any money from a transfer fee where Manchester United to sell them, which isn't really a surprise given that when United bought Martial... He was the most expensive teenager in world football, and they agreed a deal that um, went up to 80 million euros um, worth three um, performance uh, clauses uh, reached during the the spell of his contract. In other words, United paid a lot of money for the player in the first place, Um, uh, so you wouldn't expect there to be a sell-on. A clause in a deal of that nature and secondly when you go to a club like Manchester United generally those clubs don't put sell-on clauses and deals to start with so you can forget about that being a factor. Um, Martial wasn't sold because Woodward was worried about not making enough money on the deal. He was not sold because Woodward wanted to retain him at the club because he feels um, he is a, a player that should be developed at Manchester United and, and shouldn't be allowed to go elsewhere, even if the manager, even if the player wanted to leave, his agent was uh, trying to get him a move, and the manager felt that in those circumstances, the most pragmatic solution would be to take a deal on the table, and there were a number of deals on the table, uh, and invest money elsewhere in the team.
0: OK, we'll move on to Arsenal now. Ivan Gazidis is in the process of leaving the club. He will be replaced by uh, Raul Sanley, who's becoming head of football, and Vinay Venkatisham as managing director. This is the latest in a long list of changes that have happened at Arsenal since Arsenal then are departed. Ian, how do Arsenal fans view this? It's an enormous amount of change that's happened at their club and change can often result in good positives, but in this situation, with such strong competition for the, for the Premier League, surely Arsenal are in a situation now where they're looking at a long, long way back to the very, very top of the game with, with a lot of people now coming in and having to make a lot of changes. I think the first thing to um, uh, point out, Johnny, is that Gazidis was,
2: Stan Kroenke, the now uh, full owner of Arsenal Football Club after his purchase of Alisher Usmanov shares uh, three weeks ago, um, was his, if you like, his uh, marquee appointment as chief executive. He came uh, from United States uh, where Kronk obviously has his sports franchises and um, was put into Arsenal to uh, effectively run the business in the same way that Kronk expects um, or indeed has experience of running his sports franchises in the USA, and um, you have to say that in the almost ten years that he's been there, uh, in terms of performance on the pitch, uh, as Jose Mourinho might say, he has been a specialist in failure. Uh, no Premier League titles, no Champions League titles, uh, some FA Cup success, yes, but um, generally pres- presided over a period in Arsenal's history which has been as fallow as as almost any has been um, in the modern era. So, what's his legacy? I think, you know, 10 years at a club which does generate an awful lot of money, um, a club which has incredible uh, tradition and um, expectation of being at the top of not just the domestic game, but European football as well. And you'd have to say the most impressive thing about him has been his salary that he takes home because um, it's long been uh, a... uh, something which has uh, irked Arsenal fans, that uh, Gazzita's uh, basic salary was £2.62 million plus bonuses. Um, and many believed, and I think it is the case, that he benefited from saving money, um, which is not unusual in a CEO's role of any big organisation or or company. But at the same time, when success is judged by your customers, Um, on the pitch and not on the balance sheet, then you'd have to say that Gazzidis has failed. And the fact that he's now walking out, having um, presided over and indeed appointed a new director of football, or head of football as he's now known, um, as well as uh, chief scout, as well as uh, presiding over the uh, departure of Arsene Wenger, and... um, you have to say that he, you get the feeling that he is um, he's jumping ship at the wrong time because he's uh, he's not taking responsibility now for how the club is run. He's taken a, a big pay rise, um, reportedly around an extra million pounds a year, to join AC Milan, where um, an American hedge fund company uh, now owns uh, the controlling interest there. So uh, you've got to say that it looks like he's going to Milan to make money for his new bosses and the way that he made money for Stan Kroenke at Arsenal. But it's the same old, same old for Arsenal fans. They're asking themselves always uh, why we're we not investing enough money in the squad. Why are the team underperforming? Why are they underachieving? We've got a new manager at last. We've now got new people who have been promoted internally, who you've got to believe um, that is a Stan Kroenke thing. Uh, he would rather have more control stroke secrecy about the way that Arsenal Football Club was run, than um, certainly more openness and um, transparency, uh, which uh, has disappeared, of course, since he bought Usmanov's shares because there were no longer shareholders' meetings because he's the sole shareholder. So uh, it, I think it's a very poor um, situation that Gazeta's left um, in his wake uh, and also the fact that the appointments to replace him have become very quickly and internally mean that uh, there would be less accountability uh, for Stan Cronk at Arsenal uh, and therefore less accountability for um, to be explained to Arsenal fans as well with regards to investment in the team as well as performance or achievement. And I think it's just another blow for them, to be honest, and... As someone who covered Arsenal in those glory years, uh, when they were the Invincibles, when they won double doubles under Arsene Wenger and had probably one of the greatest uh, and most entertaining football teams in Premier League history, I'm, I feel quite sad. I, f- I feel quite sad. I, th- I think it's just yet another blow for um, for a, a, a support who have been incredibly loyal despite disappointment, um, and now see their club. Yet again, um, if you like, I wouldn't say disadvantage, I don't think that Gazidis was a massive advantage um, for the playing side. But the fact that, he's, that his replacements are yes-men, I think, is a, is probably a very bad sign.
1: I'm just, just looking at Gazzidis' statement um, about his departure, and he's saying here, I know many will think this is a strange time to be leaving, but I believe it's the right time for me and for the club. Change and succession is not only inevitable for a club like Arsenal, it's necessary if it is continually to keep moving forward. So, so you've got the man himself essentially trying to make excuses for why he's departing at what is really a very bizarre time. As, as Ian said, Gazzidis has been given um, carte blanche to change um, Arsenal's essentially entire management structure uh, pretty much everyone in the football club uh, above the first team uh, coaching staff support staff scouting staff manager have gone in the space of um, of just over a year to be replaced by Gazidis led appointments Um, a huge revolutionary turnover in in the way Arsenal is operated and the man who was um, was allowed to lead that process, decides to leave um, for another club uh, in another country, um, reportedly for a very significant pay rise and uh, for a percentage of the share capital of Milan, the club he's, he's going to run now. Um, that's Kazidis' decision. What's interesting to me is that Stan Kroenke hasn't kept him at the club. Um, so Stan Kroenke has has had Gazzidis there for ten years. He's entrusted him with this process of running Arsenal Football Club, um, of making uh, co- keeping it profitable, um, increasing its value to him. He's entrusted him with that revolutionary change of staff, of w- with the removal of Arsene Wenger, with the replacement of a new manager, all the all the new people around him. And when his key man is headhunted by another American. Uh, a set of businessmen, to look after their football club and offered, uh, reportedly, a significant pay rise. Stan Kroenke decides he's not prepared to match that um, and isn't prepared to offer Gazidis terms to retain him at the club. Um, and if, you know, Ivan Gazidis was the, the star striker uh, for Arsenal, um, mm. the, the key element on the, on the playing field, you'd expect Stan Kroenke to, to go out of his way to retain him, to avoid him going to competition but he, that hasn't happened. Um, so what's clear is Arsenal are losing someone who was very well valued by their owner, um, who wasn't able to to keep him there. And that, again, um, makes you ask questions about what Stan Kroenke really wants for Arsenal Football Club and how far he's prepared to go uh, to ensure they have the best personnel and the best chance of succeeding on the football pitch. Or is that not really that important to Stan Kroenke. Is he happy enough with Arsenal as long as it's turning over a significant profit each year? um, A chunk of that goes back to him and his family. And uh, the long-term value of Arsenal remains high. And when he decides, if he decides that he wants to sell the club, he can take a big profit on the price he paid for the shares in Arsenal Football Club.
0: OK, we're going to move on now to our legendary quickfire round. Today, we're going to look at the Champions League with it starting this week. And we're going to have a look at the top eight sides that have the best chance of taking home that trophy at the end of the season. And ask whether or not they are worth a flutter or you'd have to be a nutter to bet on them. We're going to start with you, Ian. Manchester City, the favourites, 9-2. I'd say
2: worth a flutter rather than being a nutter on this one, Johnny. I, I do think that the pressure from Abu Dhabi is on Guardiola and his squad to produce a much more impressive campaign than they did last season when, of course, they lost very um, uh, easily in the end to Liverpool in the quarterfinal stage. They have by far the most um, amount of quality. In their squad, in, in certainly in the, in the Premier League, and I would argue that um, outside of Barcelona, that probably extends to European football as well. Um, their problem will be, um, as we've mentioned already, that it, sustaining Premier League form, uh, rotating players, and um, and still uh, making it to those um, you know the crucial stages uh, when it comes to knockout stages in February, March, April. Uh, next year, so uh, I, I think anyone would be a nutter not to bet them if if you really wanted uh, a run for your money. So therefore, I'd say flutter, not nutter.
0: Okay, second favourites, Duncan Barcelona, eleven to two. Well, I, I'd be interested to know what European odds are on on
1: both of these clubs because I'd be very surprised if on the continent they have Manchester City who've not got beyond the quarter final stage and been knocked out by inferior sides in the last two um goes at the tournament as favorites um, with their bookmakers as opposed to the an English bookmaking market um as for Barcelona yeah um definitely worth a bet if you're if you're so inclined um still got the core of a team that won La liga comfortably last season um, and are very much focused on uh, the Champions League. This season, particularly um, their key player Lionel Messi. I think when you see Messi talking about the importance of winning the Champions League um, to him and to the club, um, you can take note and and expect him to be on the very best of his form in those games. So yeah, they're a good bet.
0: PSG, Ian, it's fifteen to two. Um, interestingly, they would be. Uh
2: a sort of middle outsider bet, I think. Again, um their history of the competition has been relatively impressive in recent years. Clearly they have a very talented squad. Uh they have the benefit, I believe, of being able to cruise in Liga. Uh although I think Marseille, um Lyon are probably equipped to to challenge to a degree, but I do think that PSG get to the point where they were in the quarterfinals, finals semi-finals of the Champions League, as they have been in the last four years, um, having already almost won the title in France. And I think that might be a disadvantage to them. Uh, as, as Duncan has pointed out before on the podcast, this was something which affected Guardiola's Bayern Munich. They'd won the title so early on that, that when they got to the latter stages of the Champions League, the motivation and the momentum had actually lost And also their physical um, capacity to cope with the intensity of Champions League knockout football had had degraded as well. And I think that's probably PSG's biggest challenge. Um, I think they're probably worth a bet because they're such a talented squad. And with a little bit of luck, then maybe they get to the final. And at that point, you know, it's it's anyone's uh, to
1: call. So I'd say, yeah, I would say flutter rather than Nutter.
0: Bayern Munich, Duncan,
1: 8-1. I'd probably want better odds than that for Bayern Munich, to be honest. Um, they've got a new coach who is untested at this level. Um, they haven't done a lot of reinforcement work in the summer. Um, they've been there or thereabouts, season after season, but there's been, um, been an inability to translate that into... Um, final success, albeit I think they were handicapped under Guardiola in that um, they had this uh, tactical dogmatism about them, which we've seen with Guardiola at Manchester City, always playing the same way um, and getting picked off by uh, the better teams who adapt to that style of play and who have a similar level of players. So I don't think they're quite there for this season. um, And yeah... I would avoid that. I'd avoid the bet at that price.
0: A bet for nutters, Duncan.
1: A bet for the Johnny McFarlane to this world,
0: <laughs> along with Liverpool. Well, uh, I'll keep Liverpool for you, Duncan. Actually, um, <laughs> Juventus, Ian, fifteen to two.
2: Very interesting. Um, I would. I'd prefer longer odds um, if I was going to take a flutter on this one, uh, Johnny, because uh, they're becoming a little bit of the, the never cusing um, of, uh, of Champions League uh, football. Um, but, but the addition of Cristiano Ronaldo, obviously, is something which no one can ignore. So, yeah, With, with Ronaldo's um, experience um, and winning mentality in the Champions League, that's a massive boost for Juventus. Uh, someone who, I think, can get them over the line in the Champions League. They're, they've got a very, very efficient team ethic at Juventus and Allegri obviously has been there and built up a squad and indeed a playing style which um, uh, has yet to conquer Europe but at the same time has come very close I think uh, Ronaldo may well be the missing link uh, and I don't think anyone would be surprised if that were the case so I would say um, if you're going to take an outside bet or a or, you know, flutter on, on decent odds try and get Juventus, um, maybe not at 15-2, but maybe, yeah, take them if, uh, if they get a draw in the group stage and their odds go out a bit, get some money on then,
0: Duncan, it's almost bizarre to see Real Madrid so far down the bookies' odds, but they are at
1: 8-1. Yeah, I think they're probably worth a bet at that price. Um, I can understand why they've come down the odds um, to a certain extent because they've lost the best player in the Champions League, Um, and they won three times in a row, you have to question how many times um, the same group of players can reach the pinnacle um, in in the toughest competition. Also, there's a huge amount of pressure on them to win La Liga this season, so you'd suspect that um, more of their focus would be on that competition. But... um, you know, they still have a lot of quality in their squad. I I actually think that Ian's had the, the team there. I think if, if there's one one club to bet on in this year's Champions League, I, I would fancy Juventus because although they've had teething problems um, fitting Ronaldo into the system, they've been so close in recent years, consistently good. They've got the best player in the competition in the squad and Allegri has shown himself to be extremely capable at coming up with... Um, the right permutation of players and tactics throughout his time at Juventus. He's had he's had previous seasons where he's had difficult starts, and he's come up with solutions every time. So I, I really fancy them.
0: Ian, Atletico Madrid. They are eleven to one. Nice wee bet, I think. Do you know what? They're,
2: this is a club that's been there, thereabouts, obviously in in both Europa League and Champions League in recent years, uh, Johnny, and it's. They, they, their story has has been a little bit sort of, you know, um, not the fairy tale, if you like. It's been the, the antithesis of the fairy tale. They've got very, very good players. They've got, a, a, like um, Allegri at Juventus, a manager who's been there um, and been able to create something from foundation up the way. They will compete with anyone that they, that they uh, come across. Um, you can't rule them out. I just wonder again about the mentality of the players when they get to that final point, which is where they've managed to to fail in recent times and whether or not, um, unlike Juventus, who have signed Ronaldo, the best player in the Champions League, as Duncan said, um, where they have the mentality to get themselves over the line. So um, I would put them between flutter and nutter. I would I would prefer... If I were anyone out there looking at a bet on Atletico, I would, I would say wait until the, the series they perform in the group stage before you, before you get your money on there.
0: And finally, Duncan, you're always a man who likes to keep our Scouts' listenership on their toes and happy and excited, so I've kept this one for you. 11 to 1, Liverpool, last year's finalists. What's your prediction?
1: As I, as I said um, before, I went on holiday, um, I, I could see them going out in the group stage. Um, i think there's a definite risk there and we we'll, you know we'll find out a lot about that tonight um with the with the Paris Saint-Germain game how that goes for them um i don't see them as uh winners um i think i think they 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 overperformed in last season's champions league um both in the quarter final and the semi final teams came up and set up exactly the way um They needed them to set up, um, which allowed them to get through to the final. I saw Jurgen Klopp um, yesterday talking about how everyone in football um, could see that um, if their moment had been right, they could have won that final. I I just don't get that. Um, I I don't get his uh, reinterpretation of of the Champions League as something that they were unlucky not to win. Um, I think the better team won and they won comprehensively. and uh, I don't see them uh, getting to a final again. I don't see them winning it. Um, Atletico, yeah, I, I, as I mentioned um, a couple of weeks ago, I think or two, when the draw came out, I, I do like them as an outside bet, maybe an each way bet um, on those odds uh, because the reasons Ian's mentioned, they managed to retain their top players. They've got a, a lot of quality in that squad and they've got a very pragmatic manager who's showed himself at being Extremely competent at getting that team to finals, or um, very, very close to winning the Champions League a few years ago, and they've taken um, a couple of Europa League to- trophies. So um, they know what's required um, to get to the final, and they might just have enough uh, if the circumstances are right to uh, to win it too.
2: Johnny, before we go, I just yeah. want to say my, my alternate quick fire round today, and I'll be very quick with this. Who would be the player you'd most like to have a chicken curry with? Now, I don't know if you saw this, but... I'm more of a Lambuna man myself. I can see that in your face. Uh, (laughs) N'Golo Kante uh, missed his Eurostar um, train last Saturday night home to see friends uh, and family in Paris and uh, went to a local mosque in King's Cross and instead um, bumped into an Arsenal fan who invited him back, as is the way in Muslim culture, to have dinner. He said yes. And he spent the next four hours having a chicken curry... Playing FIFA with this bloke and his mates, and watching himself in Match of the Day. Now that is quality. I I just love the idea that a Premier League superstar, a World Cup winner, can turn up at someone's house, having been invited, have a nice meal, play a bit of FIFA, watch Match of the Day. You know, there's not enough of that in in modern football. Uh, And so, therefore, uh, maybe next week we can do which player you would most like to invite to your house for a chicken curry.
0: Okay, well, we can uh, (laughs) certainly. I'll take that under advisement again. Thank you. Um... (laughs) And with that chicken-related story, I'm going to have to slam this particular transfer window shut. Just a reminder that we are looking for a sponsor, so if you like the idea of partnering with one of the UK's best football podcasts and talking directly to our listeners about your brand, get in touch through our social media channels. To continue the debate, we are all on Twitter and even have our own transfer window account at Transfer Podcast. We're trying to build a community on that account so everyone who follows will get a follow back. If you want to speak to us directly, I'm at Johnny R. McFarlane and most importantly, our pundits are at Duncan Castles and at GarboSJ. If you like the podcast, and we know thousands of you do, give something back by popping onto iTunes and giving us a five-star review. This helps us reach as many listeners as possible and the bigger the community, the more we can give you. It's that simple. We'll be back next Tuesday before 3pm. Until next time, thanks for listening.